If you're a regular listener, stay tuned for an important announcement. If you'd like to get straight to the episode, you can skip forward three minutes. Hello. Hello, it's Grace, writer of Red Rum and person whose voice you hear every week. Um, I've got an announcement, a thing to say, so I'm just going to say it. We have been making Red Rum episodes uh, since the middle of 2020 and we've just reached a quarter of a million downloads, which is amazing. We've got such incredible support from our listeners. So firstly, thank you so, so much. We honestly can't thank you enough. Um, We have an Instagram account at Red Rum True Crime where... I will be posting an update about this. Um, I might have already done it by the time this goes out. So follow us there for any other updates. I spend anywhere between 30 and 50 hours on each Red Rum episode. So that's the writing, the research, the editing, uh, recording and just kind of general Red Rum admin. And then Russ also does the audio engineering side of things, including... Uh, music and vocal edit and all that kind of stuff. I've been juggling Red Rum with full-time studies and part-time work and I'm just about to go into the final year of my master's which means that I'm going to be on a full-time placement Monday to Friday and some weekends and evenings from now until April of next year. Things are about to get busy. Uh, We started Red Rum as a way to give time to the victims of the crimes and we want to be able to tell their story with the respect that they deserve. I can't do that and continue producing two regular feed episodes and one Patreon episode every month. So we have decided that for the next six months we are going to be stopping content on our $6 Patreon tier and I'll be emailing everyone individually to let them know that. We'll also be reducing our regular episodes from once every two weeks to once every month. We'll be keeping our $2 Patreon level per month where you'll get that episode ad-free and a few days early. So if you enjoy Red Rum content, please consider supporting us there. You'll get uninterrupted content ahead of the curve and you'll be supporting us to get back up to our usual episode every other week as soon as we're able to. We're going to give you three episodes this month before we take the month of September off and then as of October we'll be returning and releasing one episode on the first of the month. We do have some good news though. This break in our uh, sort of regular scheduling comes at a really busy time but we have something really big planned for the summer of 2022. I know that's ages away, but stick with me. I promise you won't be disappointed. It's a bit of a game changer for us and we hope you'll be as excited as we are. But enough about that. The case I'm going to be telling you today is about a woman called Arliss Perry and about many, many other people who have been murdered or died in mysteriously weird ways on the Stamford University campus. Let's get on with the episode. This podcast contains some strong themes which are not for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Officers made their way straight to the dorm that Bruce and Arliss shared, and when they arrived, knocked and waited for Bruce to answer the door. Once he did, 
Officers were shocked to see that he was covered with blood. But when they asked him whose blood it was, Bruce insisted it was his own. He told the officers that he often got nosebleeds when he was under stress, and Arliss being missing was extremely stressful for him. This is Red Rum, a podcast focusing on the true victims of crime. Episode 35, Arliss Perry. Arliss K. Daikima was born in February of 1955 and grew up in Bismarck, North Dakota in the United States. Bismarck had experienced a slight boom in the year before Arliss was born and by the time she was just a teenager, the Kirkwood Mall had opened up and over the following few years, she would spend time visiting the mall with her sisters and brother or her friends. Arliss was a homebird and never ventured outside of Bismarck. She was happy being around her parents and grandparents, and she enjoyed staying within Bismarck. She was safe there. She trusted everyone she met. The whole Daikima family were devout Christians, and Alice always made sure she kept Sundays free for church. She spent her free time preaching the word of the Lord and gospel to people who she discovered weren't Christian. Whilst Alice was at high school, she met a young man called Bruce Perry. Bruce was a high school athlete and very intelligent. He loved to read and he and Alice got on well. They had lots to talk about. The two began dating and quickly fell in love. It wasn't long, however, before Bruce told Alice that he was going to Stanford University. He had always planned to go, and seeing as he was a year older than Alice, she would have to stay behind in Bismarck and wait to join him. She had a year of high school left and many faith-based goals to achieve. She continued spending her weekends preaching the word of Christianity whilst also participating in the cheerleader team at her high school. Before long, Arliss waved Bruce off to start his further education journey on his own. They agreed that she'd be along to California soon to visit. The year moved quickly and by the summer of 1974, Arliss and Bruce married and Arliss took Bruce's name to become Arliss Perry. Arliss soon moved to Stanford to join Bruce at Stanford campus, where she would live with him in a dorm specifically available to young couples. He still had time left at Stanford and Arliss needed to look for a job. Her kind and carefree nature made her very likeable and it wasn't long before she was offered a job as a receptionist for a law firm. Over the next few days and weeks, Arliss enjoyed life at Stanford. She took long walks around the campus and would often spend hours and hours writing letters to her friends and close-knit family back at home. She told them that she was loving married life with Bruce, but she was finding it very difficult to meet people and often got lonely. But one thing that kept her happy was to take herself for long walks on an evening. Bruce told her that she should stop walking at night He was worried that something bad might happen, but Arliss had moved over 1,600 miles to be with her husband and had few friends and no family close by. Late night walks were one thing that comforted her. One October afternoon in 1974, Arliss was at work on the receptionist desk when a white man, around 5'10 and in his early 20s with curly blonde hair, approached the desk. 
He wore jeans and a casual shirt, and after he had spoken to Alice, he left abruptly. Afterwards, Alice was visibly shaken, but she didn't mention to any of her colleagues who the man was or what had happened. A few days later, on the 12th of October, a noticeably warm evening for that time of year, Alice told Bruce she had written a few letters and she wanted to get them posted that very evening. By this time, it was a little after 11 and Bruce was worried about her going out on her own. He asked if he could walk with her and the couple left around 11.30pm. On the way to post the letter, the couple got into an argument about previous car troubles. Alice thought that Bruce should have checked the tyres because they were low and Bruce thought Alice should have checked them. After a few moments, Alice had enough and told Bruce she just needed a little time alone and was going to go to Stamford Memorial Church to pray and calm down. It was around 11.50pm when the two split off and Alice made her way to the church. Her religion meant a lot to her and it was the only thing that would comfort the young woman whilst she was thousands of miles away from her family home. Alice arrived at the church just a few minutes later and two other people who were leaving the church area around the same time saw Alice go into the church, followed just a few moments later by a man who didn't look as though he was with her. At around midnight, the security guard Stephen Crawford entered the church as it was time to lock up. He looked around and couldn't see anyone. He called out to check that the church was indeed empty, asking if anyone was there. When he heard no response, Stephen locked up all of the doors and left to go home. Meanwhile, Bruce had arrived at home and waited for Alice to return. He didn't like to go to bed on an argument, even one as small as this. Bruce began to worry, and after a few hours, he decided he couldn't wait around any longer. There was no way Alice could be angry at him, at least not to this amount that would cause her to stay out alone for this long time. Bruce knew Alice had headed to the Stamford Memorial Church, so he drove straight there. He got out of his car and walked up to the church, but as he tried the door, he realised it was locked. He walked round the church and checked all of the other doors, but they were also all locked. This wasn't surprising, given that by this point it was around 3am, but if Alice wasn't in the church, where was she? Bruce decided to drive home and hoped that Alice had returned whilst he'd been out looking for her. He arrived home and opened the door, he called out and checked the small dorm room, but Alice wasn't there. It was then that he knew he needed to call the police. Officers arrived and Bruce filled them in on what had happened. The officers then made their way to the church to check for themselves, but again, they found the doors locked, so assumed that Alice had probably come into some trouble on her way home. However, on a patrol through the streets she would have walked to get home, the officers didn't find anything suspicious. At around 5.45am that morning, the security guard Stephen arrived back at the church to unlock it for the day. As he approached, however, he found that one door was open. He made his way inside and found a horrific scene. He saw Arlist posed and laying on her back, naked from the waist down and with her blouse torn open. 
Alice's body was stiff and in rigor mortis. There was a semen-stained cushion found to the side of Alice's body, and officers found that two candles had been used to sexually assault her, although there was no evidence that she had been penetrated by the attacker himself. One of the candles had a palm print on it, which investigators took for evidence. An ice pick was found sticking out of Alice's skull behind her left ear. It was determined fairly early on that the weapon must have belonged to the attacker or been brought there, because it didn't belong to the church or Alice. She also had marks on her neck from being partially strangled, and a number of other injuries pointing to a beating. Alice's glasses were also missing from the crime scene. Officers, of course, made their way straight to the dorm that Bruce and Alice shared, and when they arrived, knocked and waited for Bruce to answer the door. Once he did, officers were shocked to see that he was covered with blood. However, when they asked him whose blood it was, Bruce insisted it was his own. He told the officers that he often got nosebleeds when he was under extreme stress and Alice being missing was extremely stressful for him. Although this was suspicious, Bruce cooperated with police and his shirt was taken for forensic testing. Meanwhile, Bruce was taken to the station and questioned. He was the key suspect in the investigation. Alice's memorial service was held on the 15th of October in the church she was killed in, and soon after, a funeral, which was heavily faith-based, was held for her back in her hometown in Bismarck. The murder shocked the community, and Stanford University offered a $10,000 reward for information resulting in the arrest and conviction of the person or persons responsible for Alice's death. An FBI profiler concluded that the killer was likely between 17 and 22 years of age, a loner who kept a detailed diary and would have taken a trophy from the crime. As I just mentioned, Arliss's glasses were missing from the crime scene. The investigation moved quickly at first, but with little evidence and only limited eyewitness accounts, things quickly came to a halt. Arliss was murdered in 1974, and the first DNA evidence used to solve a murder wasn't until nine years later in 1983. This meant that, although there were semen samples and blood to compare to, it would be years before this was actually able to be used in the investigation. The blood on Bruce's shirt was tested and was found to match his blood type, which was not the same as Arliss's blood type. However, there wasn't much else that could be determined in terms of forensics at this point. There were a number of other suspects, as well as Bruce, whilst forensic technology was improving. This included Stephen Crawford, the security guard from the church. He had been the person to discover Alice's body, so naturally, he was a suspect. Officers questioned Stephen, but it was also discovered that the church door Stephen had found was open the following day had been forced open from the inside. This meant that it was possible that the murderer had been inside the church when both Bruce and the officers had been outside at around 3am and just after. They knew this because the door hadn't been forced open when they were there, so the murderer must have escaped sometime after that and before the security guard Stephen had come back at 5.45am and discovered Alice's body. The other suspect, who had exhibited questionable behaviour, 
was the man who entered the church moments after Arliss. The two witnesses who had seen this told officers that he was a white man, around 5'10", of a medium build and had sandy hair. Interestingly, this was the same description Arliss's work colleagues had given of the man who had come to her desk the day before the murder, and who she had an argument with, or some kind of heated discussion with. There was an appeal for more information and a call out for this man to come forward, but he didn't. Many believed Arliss's death was linked to a satanic cult for a number of reasons. One of these was that just after Arliss had died, it came to light that there was a cult based in California which she had allegedly gone to meet with in order to attempt to convert the followers to Christianity. It was alleged that Arliss may have seen something she wasn't supposed to, and because of this, she had been targeted and killed by some of the cult members in an attempt to silence her. This was all unsubstantiated to begin with, but in 1977, an American serial killer called David Berkowitz, also known as Son of Sam, had just been arrested for the murder of six people in New York City. Whilst in jail, he sent Deputy Sheriff Lieutenant Terry Gardner a copy of The Anatomy of Witchcraft. Inside was a message, quote, Arliss Perry, hunted, stalked and slain, followed to California, Stanford University, unquote. David Berkowitz also sent a letter to another detective, Ken Kahn, of the Santa Clara Police Department. David said he had gone to a cult meeting in Queens, and one of the members stood up and admitted to killing Arliss. Officers did go on to meet with David and question him, but once they were there, he refused to give the name of the person he alleged had admitted to killing Arliss. Quote, If I am talking to you guys any longer, they are going to think I am a snitch. Unquote. David had previously been attacked and said he was worried about his father being killed if he said any more. Detectives weren't able to find anything else out and chalks it up to David messing them about and didn't believe he really had anything of value to give them. Since the year 1933, there have been an unusual number of murders that are linked to Stamford campus. In 1933, a real estate agent knocked on a door of the Lamsons, a family of three including the university advertising manager David his wife Aline, who was executive secretary of the campus YWCA, and their two-year-old daughter, who at that point was staying with her grandmother. The real estate agent made her way to the back garden, where David was standing with a friend. Aline was in the bath as she wasn't feeling well, so David said he would be out in a moment to help. He asked the real estate agent to go to the front door, and after he put a shirt on, he'd be out to speak with her. Moments later, however, a hysterical David screamed in horror, quote, Oh my God, my wife's been murdered, unquote. At this point, David was covered in Aline's blood and knelt on the bathroom floor, cradling her head in his arms. He then fainted and a neighbour called the police. Officers discovered Aline's body, naked, and half leant over the side of the bath. The back of her head had been caved in, and the blood spatter covered the wall behind her and the floor beside. 
It was quickly determined that Aline had been murdered, and of course her husband David was taken in for questioning. It soon became clear that David was the only suspect in Aline's murder. Initially, the couple's friends told officers that the Lamson's relationship was a good one. Things seemed happy and loving, but occasionally, officers would come across a friend or acquaintance who spoke of David's temper and anger. This was the 1930s, and the accusation was that David was angry because of Aline not wanting to have sex with him one evening because she was on her period, and he suspected she wasn't. Further accusations of affairs and general anger on David's part came to the surface of the investigation, but none were proven. The trial took place soon after, but with the defence alleging that Aline had slipped as she was getting out of the bath and cracked the back of her head on the porcelain sink, the trial was not straightforward. The prosecution argued that the injury Aline sustained couldn't have been made by a single slip or fall, and instead could only have been made by four separate blows. The prosecution also alleged that the murder weapon was a 10-inch pipe, which had been discovered outside in the garden on the family home. The defence persisted, and their experts testified that in fact, Aline's wound could have been caused by a single blow to the head. After eight hours of deliberation, David was found guilty of murder in the first degree. He was sentenced to death. David was able to gain a new trial on appeal, and this happened a third and fourth time, finally resulting in a hung jury, which meant that in 1936, David was released from jail. The mysterious deaths continued when, in 1958, a student named Tom Cordry lured his neighbour, 17-year-old Dina Bonn, into giving him a ride to the local train station. He killed her and had decided to rape her afterwards, before dumping her body in some nearby hills. However, at the last minute he changed his mind and drove Dina's body to the police station and turned himself in. Just over ten years later, physician Leslie Kulinek was dancing at a Christmas party when he was shot and killed. The murderer, Rudolf Gray, told officers that he had been dancing with Leslie's wife when Leslie had challenged him about it. The pair got into an argument and the end result was Rudolf pulling out a gun and shooting Leslie dead. Chillingly, just four years before Arliss's murder, a young woman called Leslie Marie Perlov, who was a Stanford graduate and clerk at North County Law Library in Palo Alto, had gone missing. Her co-workers informed officers that she had left work that afternoon to head home, but her mother Florence told officers she'd never actually arrived. It was very unlike Leslie, who usually called her mother ahead of her expected arrival every evening. By 10pm, Leslie's family and friends became even more worried when her car was discovered abandoned, with no signs of where she could be. It was curious also that her shoes were still inside the car, and it was later discovered that an off-duty police officer had actually seen Leslie in her car at around 6pm that evening. She was speaking to a white man with long sandy-coloured hair. The officer noticed that beside him was a beige-coloured car that was parked and presumed it was his. A canine search of the old quarry was conducted, but the dogs lost Leslie's scent at her car. On the Friday of that week, 
Leslie's body was eventually discovered. It appeared that she had been walking home from Stamford Avenue when she was jumped. The attacker used Leslie's own blue scarf to strangle her to death. Her body was discovered under a large tree in the Stamford Hills, and her death was determined to have been on the day of her disappearance. It appeared she had walked to the spot where her body was eventually found. Despite a number of leads, including a report of a couple heading up to the quarry around the time of the murder, and the report of the sandy-haired man who had been seen speaking to Leslie just before her murder, nothing came of them. However, in 2018, after forensic technology advancement and the use of DNA genealogy databases, investigators were able to eventually match familial DNA forensics to a man called John Gatru, who was, at the time of the murder, a Stanford Hospital medical technician. In September of 1973, David Levine was leaving the physics building a little after 1am. As he was walking past the front of the Mayer Library, he was surprised and stabbed a total of 15 times. He died soon after. Officers couldn't determine any motive for the murder. As far as they could tell, robbery wasn't a viable motive as David still had his wallet in his back pocket and his watch hadn't been taken. David's close family and friends couldn't think of anyone who would want to hurt him and subsequently no suspects were named. It is still an open cold case today. In March of 1974, a 21-year-old woman called Janet Ann Taylor, who was the daughter of former Stanford head football coach and athletic executive Charles Chuck Taylor, left her friend's house and began to make her way back to her cabin in La Honda, She had to get back to feed her two dogs and although her friends asked her to stay, she insisted she had to go. She planned to hitchhike to get home, but she never made it. At just after 7pm, witnesses reported seeing Janet attempting to hitchhike from a road nearby. This was the last sighting of Janet while she was alive. That following morning, Janet's friends became worried when they realised she never returned home the previous evening. In the early hours of that same morning, a milk delivery person was driving through Sand Hill Road when they noticed something in the ditch to the side of the road. The victim was Janet Ann Taylor. She had been strangled by her own grey turtleneck jumper. Janet was found fully clothed except for her shoes, belt and coat. She hadn't been raped, although investigators did believe that the motivation may have been sexual assault. Initially, serial killer Ted Bundy was linked to Janet, but it wasn't long before this was dismissed due to lack of evidence and the case went cold. Officers had noticed similarities, however, in Janet and Leslie's murder, the young woman who was strangled with her own blue scarf. Leslie's car was found less than a mile from where Janet was hitchhiking that evening and their bodies were found just two miles away from each other. Janet's case, just like Leslie's, was cold for over 40 years. That all changed when John Gertrude was linked to Leslie's murder and subsequently to Janet's murder. We were able to identify the suspect through familial DNA. He was not in any of the computer systems. We had evidence from 1973 that had been preserved that had DNA 
that we believed came from the suspect. It also came out that John had been put on trial when he was only 18 years old for the rape and death of a 16-year-old girl in Germany and in 1975 was convicted of raping a woman in Santa Clara County. In July of 1976, a postdoctoral researcher in chemistry, Edward McNeil, was found strangled and bound with adhesive tape in his apartment. His landlady found him around two to three days after his death, and as far as I could find, his case still remains unsolved to this day. Two years later, maths professor Kareel Dilu was struck with a hammer until he was dead. The murderer was Theodore Streleski, who was a former graduate student in maths at Stanford University. Theodore turned himself in after the murder, saying that he felt the murder was justifiable homicide because Professor Carell had apparently withheld departmental awards from him and demeaned Theodore in front of his peers. Theodore was convicted of second-degree murder and given a sentence of just eight years in prison. He ended up serving just seven years. Finally, in 1982, five years after Arliss was murdered, a young housekeeper called Angela Arvidsson was working part-time to pay for law school. She was on just the fourth day of her new job when the son of the household found Angela lying on the sofa, surrounded by a pool of blood. Angela was barely alive when the son found her, but by the time paramedics arrived, she had died. A delivery driver called Donald Amos was the main suspect after officers discovered a delivery receipt for rubbish bins on the driveway. After a three-week search, Donald turned himself in. He alleged that he'd blacked out after having consumed a large amount of alcohol, and when he came to, he'd found Angela's body in the foyer of the house. He then dragged her to the couch to, quote, make her comfortable, before panicking and making a quick exit. Donald was convicted of second-degree murder and sentenced to just 15 years in prison. Over the years, more suspects would be brought into question and eliminated, and many years later, a 64-year-old man named Brian McCracken came to officers to give a statement on his version of events on the evening and early hours of the night of Arliss's murder. Brian told officers that he had been at a coffee shop late at night and around midnight he left and made his way past the church. He had heard flute music and wanted to find out where it was coming from. Brian made his way inside the church, which means that if that's true, this might have been a little bit before the lockup at midnight. Brian said he saw a young, slim, white man wearing an Afro wig and playing the flute. He also saw who he thought was Arliss, lying nude next to this man. This revelation didn't come until 2011, when Brian was having a conversation with a local police officer and was told that Arliss's murder was still an unsolved case. It was at this moment that Brian realised what he'd seen was probably quite important. Whilst giving his official statement to police, officers discovered a number of discrepancies that didn't seem to fit with the other events of the evening, nor did they even seem to stay consistent within Brian's own story. And so ultimately, although initially promising, the lead went nowhere. It had been over 40 years since the murder, and Arliss's family, friends, 
and husband Bruce, who had returned to Bismarck shortly after the murder, had no justice for Arliss. Although there had been a number of promising leads, unfortunately, none of them had led to anything concrete. That all changed in 2018, when a 72-year-old retiree living in San Jose in California was linked to Arliss's murder. Cold case detectives used advanced forensic technology to test a new DNA sample that had previously been recovered from an item of Arliss's clothing. The DNA evidence belonged to the killer, and up until that point, had not been able to be matched to any suspect. But because of the forensic advancements, in 2018 detectives got a hit. The DNA belonged to Stephen Crawford, the security guard from the church who found Arliss's body. Officers immediately made their way to Stephen's house in San Jose with a search warrant. They knocked on the door and Stephen answered. He asked if he could have a few moments to get dressed and the officers allowed him. After a few minutes, they thought that Stephen might be delaying, so got a key from an apartment manager. It was then that one officer noticed Stephen was holding a handgun. The officers retreated and prepared themselves, but Stephen wasn't looking for a fight. Moments later, he pulled the gun towards his face and shot himself. He died immediately. Detectives first arrived at the scene. We were there to serve a search warrant, and we knocked on the suspect's door. Uh, He asked to take a few minutes to get dressed, and our detectives remained out outside for a few minutes. They thought he was stalling, so they had a key from the apartment manager, and so they keyed their way in, and they saw him there sitting there on the bed with a gun in his hand. And it was a studio apartment, so it was very, very small. Um, the, the detectives retreated, um, just got out of the way of the of the door and they heard one gunshot wound and found that he had taken his life with one gunshot wound to the head. On a subsequent search of Stephen's house, detectives discovered a suicide note which had evidently been written two years earlier when Stephen had been re-interviewed by police regarding Arliss's murder. Back in 1977 and over the following years, Stephen had come to detectives' attention a number of times as a suspect. He had ran into officers on the night of the murder and was told about Arliss being missing. He then said he would keep an eye out for her, but he decided not to go back and open the church to check inside. Stephen was also, along with a number of other suspects, asked to take a lie detector test. He refused even when others agreed to and he was advised to himself. Stephen's character had also been brought into question throughout the investigation. He had claimed that his parents died in a car crash when he was young, when in fact, they both died separately when he was in his 20s and his mother had died of natural causes. It's unclear why he had lied about this. After Arliss's murder was solved, Sheriff Laurie Smith said, quote, We finally have closure. The case had hit the whole department hard, and I have always taken the case really personally. A spokesperson for University Communications at Stanford said, quote, We extend our gratitude to local law enforcement for their efforts over decades to resolve this disturbing case. 
It remains a heart-wrenching memory at the university. Stanford has been cooperating with investigators over many years, and we know they've been working tirelessly to bring this case to a conclusion. Red Rum is written and presented by Grace Cordell. It's produced by Russ Clark and Grace Cordell. Music and sound design by Russ Clark. Title music by Benjamin James.